6. Revelation 6. And uh, what we're looking at in Revelation 6 is a, a continuation of chapter 5. We saw that the Lamb was worthy to open this book, which basically is a, a, a picture of having the authority to command all of human history. That's what the book symbolizes. We, are to, we use that word symbolize quite a bit in the book of Revelation because we are to see it as visionary. We're, to, we're not to actually see when we get to heaven a, an actual lamb standing there with cuts and bruises on it. We're not to see Jesus that way. We're, and so, there, neither are we to see an actual book. But the, the scroll here represents the events of human history. It's a visionary form of what Jesus said at the end of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. So what John is seeing in this vision is a picture for us. Chapter 6 is a and an outworking of that vision. And what we find here is a, an artistic a visionary portrayal of human history. From the time Jesus first came to the time He comes back. And John is shown in a vision, a real vision. Even though it's symbolic, he is seeing a real vision about real events. Now that's important for us to understand. And it's important, but it's important for us to make that distinction between what is real and what is symbolic. Remember, I said last week or a couple of weeks ago that we are not to apply that to say the miracles of Jesus. It's not a moralistic story. It the, the miracles actually happened. These things that John is seeing, he's taken up in the spirit and he's given a vision. So that what is unfolding for us in these chapters is John seeing in symbolic visionary form the story of humanity. The unfolding of the, the authority of Jesus in the world. Or as it were, the scrolls, the seals that are being uncovered by Jesus. So uh, it's important for us to have a coat hanger to hook things on and to say, you know, how does this, am I to take this literally or am I to take it symbolically? The events that Revelation are describing are literal events. But they communicate them through symbols, through pictures, just as we may tell a story or someone might produce a movie, like we've been talking about the Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia and so on and so forth. These things tell a story. They introduce characters that are biblical in nature. And so when it comes to these uh, four horsemen of the apocalypse that we are looking at this morning in verses 1 to 8, we are to apply the same 
kind of pattern of thinking to that and say, we don't believe that in heaven God has a stable and that in that stable there are four horses now being fed hay and oats, getting ready to go out into the world. But these four horsemen, these four horses, are symbolic of the devastations that will come upon the earth that God himself will unleash and let happen. And so they are an artistic kind of uh, uh, portrayal of the horrors that come upon the earth from the time Jesus first comes till he comes again. And so, as one person says, these four horsemen of the apocalypse gallop across human history, leaving in their wake all these things that uh, we will see, leading to a final consummation that we see at the end of the book of Revelation. We see that there are these four creatures, these four horses, the four horses of the apocalypse, four horsemen of the apocalypse. We've heard of that in our uh, uh, common culture. People will say, oh, you know, these powers are, are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So they'll, they, they, you know, they'll, they'll put it in a humorous way. There could be four guys on a football team. All oh, those guys, are the, they're the four horsemen of the apocalypse, those guys. are. They would use, use this imagery to describe someone who has maybe an attitude or, or bad players in society. But it's kind of taken from this. And uh, as a result, it, this has entered into the, uh, into the social imagination uh, that we have in our world today. It's, but the idea of four, just as we saw four living creatures in chapter 5, the ox, the lion, uh, the eagle, and the man, all representing dominion in every aspect of nature, so these four horsemen, again, symbolizing the completeness of evil and sin also in our world. So the four creatures symbolizing the completeness of creation. The four horsemen symbolizing the evil of this world. And so this idea of four, it's the idea of universality, of something that pertains to all of creation. Just like the number seven has the idea of completeness. We also need to understand that these things are not happening in sequential order. That it's not necessarily God saying, first the white horse goes out, then the red horse, then the dark horse, and then the pale horse. But John, although John is seeing them in visionary form as separate, distinct creatures, these things are happening at the same time. That they're happening simultaneously with one another. And we'll see, in terms of what they represent, you can see that they're happening even today, as they have for the last 2,000 years. So in other words, we're not waiting for war to finish and then pestilence. And uh, then uh, 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 poverty and, 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 and so on. We're, we're seeing these happen simultaneously. And there's a lot of overlap going on 
amongst these different horsemen and what they bring. They, they, they will all bring something common to each other. But like we saw with the vision of the throne of heaven, it is to create an impression in our minds of the ultimate evil that befalls the world between Jesus' first and second coming. That's the, that's the, rather than trying to minutely separate the distinctions between all four, we take them as a whole to say, look, uh, conquest and famine and pestilence and all of these things are often wrapped up in one another. And these four horsemen are acting in tandem. They're acting simultaneously with one another. And so we understand it in those ways. The events correspond to what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Of wars and rumors of wars and false Christs and all of these things that will come upon the earth. The devastation, invasions and conquests that he talked about there. So what Revelation 6 is, is simply an opening up of Matthew 24 in visionary form. Jesus already said that these things were coming in Matthew 24, but now what you're seeing in this chapter is John seeing it in a picture form, right? So you're seeing these things unfold. Before Jesus died, He told His disciples what they could expect. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world you will have tribulation. Some to a greater or lesser degree, but we will all face that in some way. And this is what He's preparing them for. This is what the Bible is preparing each one of us for. We may not live with war and pestilence and all of these things, conquest. Most of us have lived and grown up in the Maritimes and we haven't experienced any of those things and may God preserve us from that. But the final one, the idea of death, comes to us all, doesn't it? How are we preparing for that time. Well, in the midst of all of this, Jesus is reigning and ruling. That's what we're seeing. It is, it is when you, as you read through all of these, when each horse is introduced, you see that each one is under the sovereign control of Jesus. He's the one that opens the book. He's the one that unloosens the seals. And however we look at these things, there is one undeniable principle that comes through. Jesus is in control and Jesus wins. Jesus wins in the end. Another thing that we have to think about before we get into each one individually is to understand and to reemphasize that God is not the author of evil. The Bible makes that clear. In Him there is no darkness at all. God is light. 
and in him is no darkness at all. And so as much as we hear of in this, the, the seals being unloosed, and so on, what we're seeing is God allowing mankind to do that which comes naturally to him. For example, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Did God go in and, 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 and harden Pharaoh's heart directly? He, he gave Pharaoh over to his own will. His own evil will. It was the same with Judas Iscariot. It tells us that the devil entered into Judas Iscariot. And that out of the will of Judas Iscariot, his own evil will, he betrayed the Lord of glory. But at the same time, God was using the evil of Judas Iscariot to establish his purposes in the crucifixion of Jesus. So what we need to understand as we look at the book of Revelation is that God is not or never will be the author of evil. We can never charge God with saying, you did something wrong in order to accomplish your purpose. But to say that God uses, He allows people out of the evil of their own heart, and that's to His glory. The Bible says that God causes even the wrath of man to praise Him. The Bible causes the evil of this world to come back to glorify God. That's a way of showing us how wise and in control God is. And when we look at Revelation or when we look at our lives today, we are able to say to people, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Just like Joseph said to his brothers, you, my brothers, meant evil because you hated me. But God used your evil to get me down here into Egypt to be a savior of the world. And now, we are well positioned to, uh, to, to, to be a blessing, not only to my family, but to the, world, to, the, to the known world at that time. This is how God works. Evil comes from the evil one. Evil arises within the human heart. Listen to what James says. James' words here, I think, are key to understanding the interplay between the evil in the world and how God uses it, and um, uh, uh, the, the, the sovereignty of God, and our own place in that. James says this, what causes quarrels and fights among you? So we can think of the, the white horse, the conquesting horse. We can think of the war horse. We can think of the horses that bring destruction. We're going to see in a moment. Where does that come from? You desire, James says, and do not have, so you murder. He's not saying that God, God's doing it. He's saying God is abandoning them to their the passions and lusts of their own heart. So you say, I'm going after that piece of ground in Ukraine. 
Is God putting evil into the heart of Vladimir Putin? Or into the heart of Adolf Hitler? He is withdrawing his, his restraint upon them so that they are given over to the evil of their own hearts. This is what James is saying. Where, he says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Where did the evil come from with Joseph's brothers? Where did the evil come from with Judas Iscariot? Or Pharaoh? Where did that evil come from? Did it come from the throne of God? No, it did not. It came from within themselves. This is what James is saying. You desire and do not have, so you murder. And so what the book of Revelation in chapter 6 is doing is putting in picture form what is true of Pharaoh, what is true of Herod, what is true of, of Judas Iscariot, what is true of all of these people, including you and I. You covet and can't obtain, says James, so you fight and quarrel. So in chapter 6, as we see the book opened, and these events being set in motion, God is allowing the evil within people to take its course, giving them over as a, as a matter of judgment upon them. Romans chapter 1. Because people refuse to obey God, what does God do? He gives them over to the evil of their own heart. God says, if, is that the way you want to do it? Are you, do you want to persist in that life of warring and coveting and lusting and all of these? Well, I withdraw my restraints and I will let you let that take its course. And see where it gets you. This is what he's doing with the nations. God isn't doing evil by putting evil into the heart. He is withdrawing. And as a result, the natural course of man, because he's evil, is just like you take your hands off the wheel of a car that's out of line. You take your hands off, boom, it's into the ditch. In two seconds, because it's a, a faulty vehicle. Take your hand off, that's it. What keeps us from being more evil than we are? It's because God has his hands on the wheel. God is preventing more evil in your life, in my life, than, than there is. And thank God for that. But when God moves in judgment, he will take his hand off the wheel. And that car, which is out of line and out of sorts, will, this is what goes right back to the very, very beginning of time. Man became evil in his heart. And, he, and he, every imagination of his heart was evil all the time. That's what the Bible tells us. And then God sent the flood. God was simply giving man over to the desires of their own heart. This is what is happening. Here, as he unleashes these creatures. So he's, we see here, when he opened, uh, uh, I, I saw, uh, heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud 
voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, to be honest, some commentators are divided on who this horse represents. Does it represent Jesus? Because it speaks of the white horse coming out conquering and to conquer and so on. Some say yes, but many, and I think most commentators, would say because he is grouped in with the other four horses, and that later on, an evil creature himself, um, in uh, chapter 9, at verse 7, for example, uh, it says, In appearance like the locusts were given horses prepared for battle, and on their heads what looked like crowns of gold, and faces like human faces. So even there, they are given crowns. Uh, commentators also say that it would be irrational for the lamb to send out the lamb on this horse. Or to group it in with other horses which are clearly evil. But what makes more sense is what we were saying at the outset this chapter parallels what Jesus talked about in Matthew 24. When he talked about the end times. When he talked about what would characterize the end times. Look at what his disciples say. Tell us what these things will be. And what will be the sign of your coming and the close of the age. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. In other words, the white horse coming out to conquer and to con conquering and to conquer is a mockery of the true Christ. He is a fulfillment of what Jesus says the, of the false Christ that will come and say, I am the one. Come and follow me. I will, I will bring in a utopia. I will bring in a, 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 a system where every man can have what he needs. Uh, this is what socialists communist dictators promised down through the years. And as a result, close to 100 million people lost their lives in the 20th century through socialism. In trying to work toward that utopia that will never happen on this side of eternity. And so you have these people coming and promising. People who are like false Christs. People who come along promising the world. And who in the end are not able to uh, deliver. And so the, you, you have people like, you think of Jim Jones, remember back in Guyana in 1979, where the actual term drinking the Kool-Aid came from. Where he convinced some 900 of his followers who, who followed him like a messiah. He convinced them to, to all in unison drink this Kool-Aid, which, uh, which was spiked with poison, and they all died. We think of David Koresh, and we can think of other people. Uh, Some Young Moon in Korea, and other people who have put themselves forward as Christs. People who promised the world, saying, we're ushering in, we're just on the edge of something great. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Harmony and love and so on, as they said back in the 60s, right? We're just on the brink. 
If man would just live together in harmony, we can make a world that will work for everyone. False promises not taking into account the evil that is inside each and every one of us. This is what the white horse represents. Paul says that Satan himself transforms himself into an angel, a angel of light. He says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. And so he goes forth conquering and to conquer. Then, secondly, he says, when he opened the second seal, I heard a second living creature saying, come and out came another horse, bright and red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that men should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Again, he would have a lot in common with the horse, the, the rider, just before. There would be death and destruction and deception. But he intensifies it here by saying that that leads to death. That leads to bloodshed. Again, the communist utopia that was promised the Russians in the early part of the 20th century, where did it lead? Unbelievable bloodshed. Mao Zedong back in the 1940s and 50s. Millions of their own people destroyed in the most inhumane ways. It has left its consequences. And so this course brings this uh, devastation, to take peace from the earth, leaving in its trail a, tr a trail of blood. Even in the early days of, of the first century church, we can think of Nero, who burned Christians at his garden parties. Or the persecution of Domitian, the emperor uh, who put to death many thousands of Christians. It is said that in the 30 years prior to Herod the Great, between, between 67 and 37 B.C., more than 100,000 insurgents died in revolutions and rebellions in Palestine alone. Just in Palestine, 100,000. Again, that's been true of those down through the centuries. Events down through the centuries. We've, received, we've seen that repeated again and again and again. But we can also think of the persecution of the church. Jesus said in Matthew 10, Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. I am come to set a man against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. And you read that and you say, Hey, wait a minute, doesn't that make Jesus the author of evil? Isn't Jesus setting people against one another and isn't that what bad people do? No, again... It simply comes back to Jesus being Jesus. When pure love and truth came into the world, what did the children of the father of lies do to the one who was the way, the truth, and the life? They couldn't bear to have him around. And so they plotted murder in their hearts and they settled for nothing less than crucifixion. The dehumanizing. That's what crucifixion That's what its goal was. To dehumanize. To deperson the individual. That's what these 
men of truth, these men of Scripture, these religious men did. That's what they became. And when Jesus sets people against one another, it's not because He does something actively evil. It's because when He puts their, His Spirit in them, causing them to be born again, there's immediately division within a home. There's immediately division among friends. There's a lack of understanding. There's, a, there's an anger. There's a resentment against that person. And so the resulting divisions that Jesus talks about here, people are against one another. That's why the Bible says later on in chapter 12 that, that the devil has come after the church specifically to persecute, to slay, to seek to destroy. Because they, the church, bears within it the Spirit of the living God and becomes then the object of the devil's hatred in the world. And so the devil is able to use governments and able to use all sorts of institutions around the world to, if you can't kill them directly, to marginalize them in some way or another. That's what Jesus means. We don't need to look back to the first century. You can see it in the, the era in which we have grown up. The men who died during the Tiananmen Square uprising in 1989 or 800,000 people who died in Rwanda back in the, the 90s. Not to mention those who died in the Civil War, the First and Second World War, the 1918 pandemic that took the lives of millions of people. Jesus is saying these are the things that have happened in the world and that are happening and will happen. Secondly, or thirdly, he talks about a black horse. When he opened the uh, uh, third seal, I heard the living creatures say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse and his rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the, the oil and the wine. The rider had a set of scales for measuring. And it was to say that in times of war, the price of everything is going to go up. We, we see that today, don't we? People are talking, well, because of the war in Ukraine, wheat prices are going to skyrocket, bread uh, uh, prices. People talk about the price of oil going up. What the black horse brings is economic depravity in times of war. Again, this will be on an ongoing basis, off and on, throughout the history of human beings, what will happen. There will be a scarcity. And in all of these things, God is saying to us, if this is so, you know, at one level, there's not much we can do about this. this, is, this is, these are the things that are going to happen. On the other hand, what God is saying is that if this is the world you live in, and this is the heart that you have, what is it doing? It's driving us to Jesus. If nothing else, if the, we say, look, I, I feel completely overwhelmed by all of this. Where do I start? You start by doing what we looked at last week, 
looking to the Lamb in the midst of the throne that was slain, who died to overcome human evil, who died because of your evil and my evil. We're all a part of this, you see. And if you exempt yourself and say, well, this is the other guy, this is not me. Look, David would never, ever have dreamed in a million years that he would have had adultery with a woman and had her husband killed off. Peter would never have dreamt in a million years. In fact, minutes before he did it, he would never have said that he would deny his Lord Jesus with swearing. And if you think you're any better, you're in a dream world. You see? And what, where does that drive us to? It drives us to what happened with Habakkuk, for example. Habakkuk, in the face of impending invasion, when he was faced with famine, which was the natural outworking of war, high prices, inflation, all the rest of it, it's coming, he, he says here, and he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vine, and the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. And the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Friends, that's it. Even Habakkuk, way back when, when he was facing the same things that John is predicting here, he says, look, Life isn't all about food. Life isn't all about health. Life isn't all about having peace all the time. Habakkuk said it's coming. But what about me? I will rejoice in the Lord my God. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Oh, it's coming. God has decreed it. But there is something that I can do today. I can take joy. I can be joyful in the God of what? The God of creation? The God of power? The God of, the, the God of my salvation. And that's what we're seeing in, in this book. Weep not. For the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the seals and to look thereon. And I turned and looked and behold a lamb looking as if it had been slain in the midst of the throne. That's the, the point. And that's what Habakkuk is saying. And that's what John is saying. We think about our queen who will be buried tomorrow. The most popular woman of the last hundred and so many years, since Queen Victoria anyway. Most famous woman in the world. Surrounded by the trappings of power and luxury, the best of food, meeting every famous person you could think of, having every privilege, and yet, humbly in her Christmas messages, she could point to the child who was born King of Kings, whose teachings she sought to follow, whom she called Savior in one of her Christmas messages, who continually pointed hundreds of millions of viewers to Jesus in spite of all. She would talk about the, the terrible things that were going on in her own life. 
Remember the Annas Horribilis, 1992, when Windsor Castle burned and her children were getting divorced and all the rest, everything was falling down around her. She, she, was a, she wasn't a fool. She knew that she lived in a broken world. That's why each Christmas she pointed people to God. And if that woman, the most famous woman in the world, can do that, if she looked to God, if she looked to Jesus and said in one of her addresses, all the fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. She quoted that Christmas carol. She said, that's my prayer for all who are watching. What a humble woman she was. She didn't take, she didn't, wasn't big on herself. Can we do no le any less? I think as the years went on, it saw her need of a Savior, her need of something higher and greater than herself. As she witnessed the brokenness of the world in which, over which she ruled and reigned. And like Solomon could say, vanity of vanities, I gave myself to building projects and knowledge and this and that and wine, women and song and forget about it. It's all vanity. Until the one who was truth actually came along. He who was the way, the truth, and the life. The wisdom of God and the power of God, the Lord Jesus. He is the one that's... You can get lost in, in all of these details and say, well, it, it belongs to that part and this part and this means that. And you might disagree with me in a hundred ways to Sunday this morning. But the point of this is to say, look at the world in which you live. But look at what God has given. Look at what God has provided. Are you going to simply yield your whole life over to these four horsemen? Or are you going to yield your life to the one who holds the book in his hand? I have the keys of hell and of death. This is what he says in the fourth seal I heard. And look, behold, there was a pale horse and its rider whose name was Death, and Hades followed him, the grave, and there was given to over him a fourth of the earth. In other words, there's the limitation again. God limits it. A fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, and with famine, and with pestilence, and wild beasts of the earth. Terrifying. But it's not so terrifying when we read what Jesus said in chapter 1. I am he who, who lived and died, and behold, I am lie forevermore and I have the keys of hell and of death and when somebody has the keys that means they're running the show they can open the house they can close the house they can turn on the car they can they can do what they like so it's to him that we must go as we see these quite terrifying pictures where man is left to his own volition to expedite evil upon the face of the earth, to bring this evil. And we ask ourselves, am I going to be the victim of all of that and ultimately the subject of its evil or am I today going to sing the praises of the Lamb and trust in Him and hope in Him that He has overcome with His blood that He is worthy. He is worthy of my soul this morning. Can you say that? I hope you can say that 
right this morning to say to Jesus, you are worthy of my soul. Because you came from heaven. You were the creator of everything. You became a human being so that on the cross you could shed your blood, die and rise again for me, one of your sheep. I hope and pray that you can say that. It would be utter madness to say anything else, wouldn't it? Utter insanity to go down any other route. For these are the words of Jesus Himself. Let's pray.